everyone, and welcome back. We have a fantastic guest with us on today's episode, Evan Ash, who is the author of Combat on the Homefront, the Cold War Decency Crusade Strikes Green Bay. Evan is a PhD student in history at the University of Maryland. He's actually an alumnus of the Democracy and Justice Studies program at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay, and he was a Voyager intern during his last semester in college. Evan recently received his master's in history from Miami University in 2019. Fun note for our readership, um, I also received my master's in history from Miami University way back in 2003. Um, Evan was probably uh, pretty young when I finished up um, at Miami. Fourth grade, I think. Um, (laughs) So Evan is primarily a cultural historian of the American 1950s, paying special attention to comics, youth, and moral crusades. Joining me uh, today are Max Noyen and Jenny Shaw, uh, who we have heard from on our first two podcasts, of course. They're going to have some questions for Evan today as well. So basically, we're going to talk to Evan about his background in cultural history, uh, what the process of historical research is like, uh, which should be illuminating for our readers, and then talk a little bit about his article um, specifically. So to start, Evan, um, let's look at your background. Uh, What initially piqued your interest in cultural history? Uh, What was it about that subfield that was so fascinating to you? And why focus on the 1950s particularly? Well, you know, it, it all started, um, I think like in the, in the summer before I was going to start my, I had just, I had just come out of actually, uh, UWGB's theater program, uh, as well as the democracy and justice studies program. So kind of with that, I had developed an interest in culture. I, I think it stems from that, um, that I was interested in kind of this more radical theater um, stuff from the federal theater project. In fact, when I started my, when I started my master's, I was thinking of either doing something on the federal theater project or um, doing something on the black Panthers because the black Panthers were kind of what I had written my uh, senior seminar paper on UW green Bay. But over the summer, um, that summer before I left for Ohio to start my master's, I, I started getting back into comic books um, with a friend of mine. And as I started reading, and I don't remember, it's this horrible thing. I can never remember exactly sometimes where these these impetuses come from. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I, I had this idea that, you know, oh, the comics code, that's kind of a weird weird thing in you know comics and american history that we don't really talk about you know that it's this the comics code was this uh it was the most severe set of cultural restrictions and censorship that had ever been put on a medium in this country and you know when i started to think about it and i'm sure i'll get into this later with a different question but it just kind of it just kind of fell into my lap with um with the stuff that i was interested in because with you know, the rest of the historical disciplines and the kind of evidence that historians are using and the way that they're using this evidence to tell um, stories about the American past. Cultural history is kind of like the latecomer to the game. Yes, it is. So, 
Can you possibly um, very succinctly uh, perhaps uh, explain or describe what cultural history is for our, our readership or listeners? Um, what what uh, separates it from, say, uh, you know, political history or social history? Yeah. So political or excuse me, cultural history is a way of understanding history by by looking at artifacts of culture. And to me, it's, um, you know, to use the historian's cliche, it, it feeds into a more bottom-up um, history. Because when you're looking at cultural history, you're looking at, A, parts of, you know, in, in my case, let's say American culture. So you're looking at stuff like books and newspapers and magazines explicitly for their their cultural value and you use them to you use them to judge kind of the american you know to use a five dollar word the american zeitgeist you know the way that (laughs) the way that the way that things are going at a particular time and you know that that's where i cultural history because you get a sense of kind of what's going on with the common people. I was just going to ask uh, if, cu- yeah. if cultural historians make a distinction between high culture, low culture, popular culture, because obviously when we use this this amorphous term culture, there's there's a wide variety, right? Um, there's a difference between opera um, and, and, and pop music. There's a difference between comic books and Nobel Prize winning literature, right? So yeah, well, that's actually I'm I'm glad you actually mentioned that because that that's actually an integral point in kind of the research that I do um, is looking into cultural hierarchy because the great cultural historian Lawrence Levine back in God I think it was the 80s if not earlier um, had this great book called Highbrow Lowbrow. The origins of cultural hierarchy in America. And it's actually, it's so fascinating, especially, you know, that it ties in so much to my research on comic books because comic books have always been at the extreme lowest part of cultural hierarchy and, and having this cultural hierarchy really sets the tone for not only the way that Americans consume culture because they're in at some point in uh, a time magazine article or, or life one of those two they you know i blur them together in my head all the time there's actually um there's actually a page where they have this giant chart and it's like highbrow middlebrow lowbrow and it's got like 12 different categories on it wow. you know where where someone highbrow might ooh look at modern art uh and, and then middlebrow is like a, a pta you know, kids art thing. And then the lowbrow is like a girly magazine and beer at the local Elks hall. Um, so it's just, it, it's really informative for not just uh, looking at the way people of certain classes consume things, but also what's um, kind of what inferences I think people across the classes are making to each other with regard to their cultural consumption. So, um, you know, there is definitely that, that actually is, going to be uh i think a significant factor in the dissertation for the prospectus which i am currently writing 
Awesome. And of course, we wish you luck with that. I, I remember that. Uh, I remember that process. I'm not going to say fondly, but um, it was it was definitely an interesting time period to immerse yourself in all the literature and try and figure out how you're going to, of course, contribute to that. Well, let's actually talk about um, the the research process. Um, I think for our listeners and our readership, um, how historians go about actually creating history is something that they may not be familiar with, right? We see the articles as they come out, but it's a really, really long process to get to that finished place. So for yourself, um, how do you go about um, beginning historical research? How do you pick a topic? Um, are you immersing yourself in the literature? Is it about finding primary sources? Is it about a, a larger question that pops in your head? Walk us through kind of your your process as a historian um, on how you pick a topic and 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 move into spending um, time immersed in that world. Yeah, so I think I'll start. The, the better and more entertaining story, I think, is uh, how I settled on the topic for my master's thesis. And it was completely by accident. And that's how these things happen sometimes in, in historical research, is you you stumble across something, you take a chance on it, and then it winds up being really great. So a rewind a bit, I know I had mentioned a little bit earlier that when I was getting back into comics in the summer of 2017, I was thinking about the comics code, um, which had which for unfamiliar listeners had effectively self-censored comic books from uh, the 1950s, 1954 specifically, uh, until the 70s or 80s, when, when comics uh, readership started to skew in a more mature direction and people basically just started ignoring it, even though the code was still technically in place till 2011. Um, but I'll get off my soapbox there and continue with the story. Um, so I got to Miami and I had I was looking for this book. Uh, it was written in 19... 19- Amy Nye done her PhD at the University of Wisconsin. Um, and this was kind of the one book that I knew of at the time that specifically addressed the comics code. And the horrible thing was our library had lost its copy of it. Uh, but thankfully, oh, no, had, that's amazing. <laughs> but thank and I don't think they ever lost a copy of a different book I was looking for. But thankfully, we had access to it through a database. Uh, from the library, so I had I was able to read it digitally, which which is fine. As you may remember, Eric, um, my handwriting is not the greatest, so uh, <laughs> I like meant to, take to be those. a doctor. Uh, yeah, well, I'm gonna I am going to be a doctor, just not of medicine, of philosophy. Um, but so what happened was I read Amy Nyberg's book uh, finally, and it was pretty it was pretty good. And in the in, and in her introduction. She mentioned a group called the Cincinnati Committee for the Evaluation of Comics. And for those of you who don't know, Miami University is about an hour north of Cincinnati uh, in southwest Ohio. So I I was like, wow, that's that's so close to here. And so what I did was I just, you know, I put Cincinnati Committee for the Evaluation of Comics into the old Google and sure enough, there was a collection of documents from the committee that was held at the Cincinnati Public Library. And that's kind of how that uh, that trek got started. I went down there. Uh, I, I went down there in early October, so very early on in the process. And then over kind of that first year, I made several trips down there, worked out of the primary sources. And that's that's 
where it all started. You know, there's Eric talked about um, what different, you know, there's different approaches to this for historians. And I I am of the kind of historian who is um, what what someone might call an archival specialist. Um, I my professors have told me that I have like a dog's nose for finding stuff in archives. Um, <laughs> that's a good skill to have. So that's 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 where a lot of my a lot of my research comes from. Basically, finding a reference to something in a book somewhere, and being able to find the right archives and then take a dive into those archives. Uh, and that's kind of how my, that's kind of how the the process for the second big project of, of my recent years uh, has been, which is kind of this, this history of public service comics uh, that appeared in DC's comics from the forties uh, to the sixties. Um, that was similar research that I did at the uh, university of Minnesota. And again, that was something where I, I came across it, looked it up, and found there was a, a trove of documents. And I'm sure that strategy will stop working for me someday. But uh, <laughs> to this to this point, it's uh, it's run certainly out I don't know. it's certainly been a, a fruitful way to approach uh, to approach the I've been doing um, for for my eventual dissertation. So the 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 piece I found most interesting, it, this was just a footnote in your article, but I assume you talked about it a bit more in your thesis, is the uh, the classification of the Bugs Bunny comic book as objectionable. So hopefully someday you'll uh, you'll you'll do a piece on that. Yeah, you know, well, my my the. The thing I would do with that is I'm you know I would have to find a copy of it in some database or something. But you know the interesting thing with the Cincinnati committee, um, as opposed to kind of you know because there were not really any other groups like them who were rating comics before the comics code happened. There was like the Legion of Decency, who was a big nationwide uh, Catholic group. Um, and they did put stuff on lists, but their cri- they were definitely not as exhaustive as the Cincinnati Committee, who had the benefit of a psychology professor who specialized actually in making um, measurements and uh, evalu- basically evaluations. And Harriet tuned to the um, aesthetic qualities of the comics and not just the moral elements. Um, one of the really great kind of stories from the primary sources is that um, the minister who was in charge of the Cincinnati committee was a Protestant. They were mostly a Protestant group, though they did have Catholics on their um, on their board. Was that when he went to the Comics Code Authority in the light in uh, the mid 1950s and met actually with the judge who directed it, who was a Catholic. Um, he noted that at the Comics Code, they were much more concerned with the regulation of sexual imagery, while his own committee, which had its evaluations reprinted to a national audience, were more concerned with the regulation of violent imagery. So that was that was that was an interesting uh, tidbit there. Absolutely. Well, let's um, let's get into to combat on the home front. Um, Jenny is going to have a question here, but I think before we get to her, can you just give us a, a brief, um, uh, you know, uh, capsule summary for, for those who haven't read the article yet? Uh, what was co- combat and what was its purpose? So combat was what I call in my research a decency group. 
Um, and uh, decency groups were very common in the United States, especially in the 1940s and 50s. Um, they were civic organizations, uh, actually civic and or religious organizations, because there's actually there's kind of two main topologies of them. So like actually Legion of Decency, which I had just mentioned, you know, they were entirely operated out of, they were operated by a Catholic church uh, lay people in addition to having the support of citizen volunteer groups like the Knights of Columbus. Uh, and then you had civic groups who were like combats, uh, which stands for the committee on movies, books, audio, and television, which is, you know, just the greatest acronym that they, awesome, they could have yeah. thought that they could have thought up. Um, but groups like combat groups, like Cincinnati committee, uh, who operated as, um, you know, kind of catch-alls you didn't have now in combat's case, combat was very full of Catholic affiliated people from the green Bay area. Um, but it, ne it wasn't necessarily overseen by a religious uh, governing body, which was the difference. And their goal was basically to improve improve the content of these things that basically the children were reading um, and also to kind of agitate against what they saw as basically dirty writings, things that would lead children astray uh, by reading them. And so my article is, it's really, you know, I don't make any big claims uh, that this is unearthing something massive because it really is just, this really just draws from Press Gazette articles. Um, and it's basically just kind of a survey of this group that's giving us a window into Green Bay back in uh, back in the 50s and 60s, what people during that time kind of thought politically and uh, socially, religiously, showing kind of the the big influence of religion, especially uh, especially Catholicism, on this worldview uh, in the Green Bay area, and it's showing that these big kind of nationwide moral panics, especially the one over comic books, you know, hit right here in our uh, our own hometown. Awesome. That's very informative for our readership and uh the articles was a lot of fun and it's you know uh why you 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 were limited as you say in sources um and uh that of course is something we could talk about but um it, it's a it's a story that reveals a lot about i think the um the values of the united states especially you know medium-sized you know, towns in the Midwest during the the kind of height of the Cold War. Um, so I think at this point, uh, we're going to turn things over to Jenny. She has a question for you. So continuing with the process of, process of historical research and analysis, just about every historian hits a roadblock at some point. So when this happens, how do you work through it? Hmm. Well, Evan I guess doesn't doesn't have roadblocks. You you know, honestly, Eric, I really don't. <laughs> um, now, if if there's some way, you know, I'm I'm sure there's is there maybe like like roadblocks with regard to research, roadblocks with regard to um, roadblocks with regard to writing. Um, kind of what do you both maybe? Yeah, both? I. I Jenny, I, th I think Jenny's, yeah, asking if 
it could be anything, right? Is it the writing process? Is it, I mean, when, when we were looking at, at, at your article, um, one of the reviewers I remember um, had, had, had lamented the fact that some records were no longer in existence. Well, the combat records, right, are, are, are nowhere out there, right? Presumably. Um, Presumably. presumably right i mean they might be in somebody's basement somewhere um maybe well you know and that's that's what almost happened with the cincinnati committee not to keep not to keep going back to talking about this but my oh, another favorite tidbit of that story is that uh the records almost went into the garbage um because the uh, wife of one of the old professors that was on it uh had offered them to the library because she was moving into assisted living and couldn't keep the documents so she said you know I'd like to offer these to you if you don't have space for them. I'm sure there's a wastebasket somewhere around. So, you know, it is possible. And, and that's how I do end my article um, is by saying that, you know, it's possible that these these records could be out there. You know, it's it's certainly my my hope. I think uh, here I'll, I will a- attempt to answer the question that has been posed. I do. I am not perfect. I do have roadblocks. I was being. A, I was being a bit. I was being a bit glib. Um, but you know, with with combat, actually, that is. It is a really good. Um, it is a really good example of of a roadblock um, because you know you get to you get to this final press. What I assume is a final press gazette article here in 19, 1967 or nineteen sixty eight, something like that, and then they're just gone. And, you know, you're combing the Press Gazette for the years after that, can't find anything. You know, with that, this isn't this isn't very inspiring. But, you know, sometimes you just have to admit defeat and figure out, you know, what to do with the stuff you have gathered. And sometimes that 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 is saying we don't know. And, you know, because historians aren't, you know, we're never 100 percent sure of anything because history writing history is an evolving evolving process and so much of it is going back and correcting holes in holes that have appeared in other scholarship over the years so it could be that 20 years down the road i'm sure no absolutely nobody will be interested by this but it is possible (laughs) that you know somebody could go diving in the records of the green bay archdiocese and maybe the meeting minutes or even some letters that had been exchanged between um member between lay people that were involved say at saint norbert so it could have also been stuff at saint norbert for example uh that has actually been sitting there so you know that another part of it is you know, thinking that there might always be something out there, but knowing that you've done the best with what you've been able to get. Yeah, I mean, as historians, we have to work with the sources that are available. We we can't create them out of um, out of thin air. And so there's limitations. And I think you um, absolutely you know showed that. Um, and again, we'll stumble upon um different sources or new sources but um all we can do is deal with the sources that we have and that can be frustrating of course because um i think a lot of us want to find that you know quote unquote magic bullet that you know 
shows us the answer to everything, but that's just simply not how it works. And also we have to, at some point, say enough research is enough, right? Um, you have to um, do your best and uh, put your work out there and move on to other projects, right? Like you could just keep working on the same project the entirety of your career and um, that's not necessarily um, productive either. So um, what ultimately prompted combat to focus on young children um, and uh, was was it was it um, to you know gain the support of the, the Catholic community in Wisconsin um, what what was its kind of I guess impetus what was it ultimately trying to do well I think it was it was trying to make sure that kids have suitable uh, avenues for consumption i think um what's kind of funny is that they 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 really get formed in 1954 when this kind of moral panic over comic so comic books they spend their most they devote their most energy to comic books kind of after uh all of the moral panic has subsided um because with the uh, with it peaked in april uh, the summer of 1954 with the Senate hearings on juvenile delinquency in New York and the comics code came after that in September of 1954. And I can't, I think they might've been formed in February. So they are coming kind of late to the scene with regard to criticizing uh, comic books, especially, but and I don't know if they had to worry about winning the support uh, of Green Bay Area Catholics because I, from the beginning, there were so many people involved kind of in the creation of it that you saw that it was really a, it was really like a, a basically a Catholic mission. Right. Um, and, you know, and, and this is, this is, and this Catholic kind of, I would say obsession almost with making sure that you know periodicals and stuff are decent i mean this goes back this goes back almost to the turn of the century um with uh with like the legion of decency and this also comes out of uh we're also following the uh panic over the content of movies in uh in and that was a huge uh catholic effort there to clean up the uh to clean up what they saw as uh immoral movies um, and actually, the there's many fascinating uh, parallels to from the um, the Catholic kind of criticism of the film industry in the 1920s to uh, the general, really, uh, criticism of comic books during the mid 50s. Um, but to get back to the question at hand, they were, you know, they were it didn't really have a very complex uh, special mission. They were just trying to make sure that kids weren't reading stuff that was going to uh, turn them into criminals. <laughs> exactly. No, it, yeah, I, yeah, no, I know you, you, uh, you laugh, but that's, uh, that's what they were doing. That was the, that was the kind of consensus of this, this kind of second, uh, major freak out over comic books that happens from roughly 1948 to 1954. Um, because during the world, during world war two, you have this really, perceived if not actual um increase in juvenile delinquency so the fear uh after the war and, and this is 
not helped by the fact that after the war, comics take a more mature editorial tone, uh, dealing with crime and you know violence more candidly. And, and that's the real fear is that um, children are going to read these things and you know, these are going to be, in the words of some famous critics of comics, they're going to be become blueprints for delinquency. It's going to teach kids how to do crime, which is going to lead to kids becoming criminals. And that's that at the core is is what they want to protect. But there's also this, you know, you talked about this as part of the Cold War. And that's a really important part of understanding what's at stake here is that um, it starts to feed into anti-communism as well. Because among among those really on the right during the Cold War, there was a belief that communists would try to get children by subverting their morals. And that was that was the only way the communists could win with children was to was to completely was to basically turn their morals uh, away from goodness, which would lead them to be susceptible to communism. Uh, so that's what that's one of the major kind of fears that drive the formation of decency groups like combat uh, throughout the 40s and 50s. Right. So, you know, comic books that portray criminals could be seen as subversive, could be seen as, um, you know, propaganda that the 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 communist ideology could use to turn the minds of, of American youth, um, you know, away from the decent moral standards of, of the United States. Yeah, precisely. And also, you know, aside from the Cold War aspect, we have the, the mid-1950s are kind of the peak of the liberal consensus. You know, that is, uh, that is, that is for um, listeners unaware, this basically this gigantic deal, which is a phrase that historians have used to talk about it, where, you know, conservatives are going to be maybe okay with expanding the welfare state to people and liberals are going to be okay with maybe bombing a few communist countries overseas. Um, but basically this idea that, oh, we're all going to agree, we're all going to get along, everything will be okay, so much prosperity right now. And that, oh, we, you know, oh, we need to down, we need to downplay racial strife because we're really just, we all really just need to get along. And violent comic books, especially uh, the early horror comic books of this time, they kind of punch a hole in that narrative uh, that they say, well, no, there's there's prejudice, there's violence. So that's another reason why groups like combat kind of a kind of a more understated reason um, I've seen in writings about this is that these violent comics went against the consensus that people wanted to uh, put forth. Yeah. And I mean, that's a fascinating kind of line of thought to continue. Well, I want to uh, turn things over to Max. He has a, a question for you. Uh, hello. So uh, the question I have is where the DCC groups of America's like their rating systems for movies in 1959 in any way a precursor or influential in the standard rating systems that were developed in 1968 with the MPAA, the Motion Picture Association of America? Yeah, so uh, the Legion of Decency uh, actually, was, they rated movies before uh, the MPAA did. Um, and I think, I think in my article, um, 
where they had long lists of movies and they actually they had a you know i'm kind of glad the mpaa came along because the legion had a very confusing uh rating system uh from what i can remember where they had it was like a1 a2 a3 o and uh, and something else um but while it was confusing i mean the legion were really important in kind of dictating these things and while this is much earlier than we're talking about, it's actually key to remember that in many cities, you actually had citywide or statewide film censorship boards um, that uh, that were, you know, very powerful in keeping movies out of certain places. And a key reason for why there was so much um, discussion around that with films was because of the Supreme Court ruling in um, Mutual versus the uh, Film Commission of Ohio or the the something something of something film something of Ohio, uh, which ruled that the First Amendment did not apply to film. And so that was why you had so much uh, censorship of film really before the production code and the Hayes Code of the 1940s when and this is a this is a trend that's in film, in comic books, in video games now. Actually, is that these um, the creative bodies of these um, industries move to self censor, or I was going to say self censor themselves, which is repetitive, um, but the move to self censor. Um, so that they do not receive kind of either third party censorship that came in the form of the Hayes Code or the Legion of Decency, because in a sense, that's what these ratings are, is their censorship, because they're saying that, oh, you know, this movie is, uh, you know, this movie is condemned, this movie is objectionable, so therefore you should not see it. Therefore, we're going to agitate to get it removed. And that was actually something that the Catholic groups leaned heavily on. Uh, with movies and with um, with comics is that the Legion of Decency had these Catholic support groups like the Knights of Columbus who were in most communities and they would actually lean on them to go out and try and, you know, intimidate or coerce are very strong words, um, but they're not accurate in this sense is that they would have volunteers go out to newsstands and say you know we don't want you to carry these violent in let's just use in our sense uh comic books and you know they would promise that if if the retailer complied then they would uh, they would be positively mentioned uh in their newsletter which you know would hope hope would lead to uh, an increase in sales and uh, actually to relate this to combat um, there's a very little tidbit that I picked up that combat actually had little window placards that they would give to uh, newsstands in the Green Bay area that were going to uh, comply with them and not stock any uh, comics that could be seen as objectionable. Excellent. Well, we are nearing the end of our show. I think uh, final question. Um, how do we explain the decline of combat um, as well as the larger decline of this moral panic over obscenity um, was it a fact of the public losing interest cultural shifts that were happening uh, the political landscape um, how do you um, uh, how, how do you uh, judge the or assess the um, the decline of organizations like combat 
Yeah, so that's that's a really great question because it is one of the questions that I am still trying to answer. But I do have I do have a hypothesis that I'm working with on it. And I think that the main reason why it goes away is because um, with these with these debates on especially children reading violent imagery, like in these comic books, anti-violence liberals, while they didn't play a large part, they still played something of a part in these debates. And basically what happens after this mid-1950s panic over violence and juvenile delinquency, uh, it turns into, as you said, uh, panic, uh, moral panic over obscenity, which turns into kind of the anti-pornography movements of the 1970s. And I think by this point, um, these groups took a decidedly rightward swing, which coincides, I think, with the rise of the new right, the rise of the religious right in America during the late 1960s and early 1970s. And that's kind of that is my to me, the most convincing explanation for um, what happens is that these moralist critics, I think, are seen as increasingly kind of reactionary especially given all of the the cultural change that had happened in the late 1960s and early 1970s. So they looked, I think, increasingly out of touch. Um, but also, and this is uh, derived straight from the Cincinnati committee, is that it was it was all old people, for lack of a better word, that were directing and running these movements. And when they died, and they died, in droves nobody uh nobody came to replace them i mean that was that was why the uh cincinnati committee ended in god uh, 19 i don't know i don't know the exact year 1972 let's say the early 1970s um was because everybody had died there were three people left and they said well everybody died we might as well uh close up shop reminds me of the shakers right <laughs> like yeah, exactly you, you uh your movement's gonna gonna definitely die out so i mean in a way it's it's you know the rise of um things like the moral majority and the focus on family values and as you say uh, a reaction against the counterculture of the 1960s and the 1970s um that you know turns this movement uh, rightward, which becomes an important part of the the rise of the new right and, and new conservatism in the United States um, in the 1970s and you know, Reagan's ascendancy in 1980. Yeah. And then, um, oh, there was, there was one other thing. Oh, well, and I think part of, there's more evidence for um, it being turning into an increasingly kind of radical right-wing thing is you there was an outcry. I, this had to be back in like 2010, I want to say, uh, when Marvel had announced that they were, you know, they were running a, like a new line, I think, of LGBT superheroes. And there was a freak out from one million moms, uh, which I think was an offshoot of uh, focus on the family, which which was which is a like a far, far right anti LGBT group. So that kind of, you know, and that's like nobody really freaks out about it until then. And that's that's the kind of objections that we're getting now is um, kind of from this this radical anti-gay um, of, of the right. Natural evolution of uh, of groups like combat, but 
that's 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 that I think is the most reasonable explanation for it. Yeah. But and I mean, I I would agree that this story is certainly not over in in that there's still objections um, to a variety of media. Um, so it's a as relevant a uh, a story as as was happening in the 1950s and the 1960s. Well, Evan, this is uh, th- we've we've got to come to an end. So I just want to um, personally thank you for joining us today. This was really a lot of fun. Uh, I think um, you added a lot of depth and um, uh, just you know further further um, f- further uh, you know awesome things to your article that should be of interest to our to our listeners and our readership so thank you so much for joining um jenny max and i today yes thanks it was really really great to be here really great to um to come back and give back and contribute to something that you know if you really look at it was the start of uh of my journey in history going back uh back in the halcyon days of halcyon <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how you pronounce that word i think it's uh, days of 2017 so uh, well, thanks we, a lot we, eric jenny max all we were glad to have you, and uh, of course, we're uh, we're watching your career with great interest, and maybe you'll be back um, someday in the future. So, all right. all right. So that brings us to the end of today's show. Voyager, the podcast, is a production of Phoenix Studios at the University of Wisconsin Green Bay. Phoenix Studios executive producer is Ryan Martin, and the production manager is Kate Farley. Our our audio production coordinator is Bill Salick. Our sound engineer for this episode is Sarah Miller. Thank you, Sarah. Our graphic designer is Kimberly Vlies. Special thanks to today's guest, Evan Ash. If you haven't already, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform. You can also head over to our website at uwgb.edu slash podcast to check out past episodes of this and all of our shows. To learn more about Voyager or to subscribe to our magazine, please visit voyagermagazine.org. Thanks for listening.